So what I'd like to do in the sermon is take a look at the church in the Bible, the first century church. It's the one era of the church that is recorded in minute detail for us where we don't have to worry about historical interpretation. We don't have to worry about whether it's the enemies of the church talking or the supporters of the church, etc., because it's an inspired description. God made sure that the record of the beginning of the church in the first century would be recorded and preserved so no one could mess with it. And that example of that church continues to speak to us today, and it highlights the centrality of the work of reaching the world to the existence of the church. It's at the very center of our existence and our purpose as a church. So we're going to go through a few collections of scriptures that I've organized in a particular way to help us sort of see that. For instance, let's look at the birth of the church. Now, when I say that, I'm not introducing a doctrine like, oh, you're born now, you're born again, I got you, Smith. Calm down, everybody, take a breath. No, you're born at the resurrection, right? We are only begotten now. We're developing like a child in the womb, and we're actually born at the resurrection. But, I mean, the beginning of the church, the beginning of the New Testament church, when it started on that day on Pentecost in A.D. 31. So turn to Acts chapter 2. Some of you instinctively already began turning there, right? Because you knew I was going to talk about this. I mentioned the beginning of the church, so good on you if that's the case. Though I like to say, if you, if you could predict that much where we're going... You're accountable for it because God knows it's in you now, right? God knows it's in you, so there's no excuse to, to get away from it. In Acts chapter 2, we'll read actually quite a bit. I feel it's, it's helpful to get a lot of context here and see what's going on. So Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. Here at the beginning of the church, we read, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. It's interesting how verse 1 is vital to everything that comes together. Had the church not been of one accord in one place, where would the rest of Acts chapter 2 have happened? What would have taken place? There are prerequisites to doing the work. And this here is part of them. Verse 2. Then suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, that is, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we have them empowered to be able to speak. I don't know what that would be like here. You know, we, we have... There are groups in the world of people who call themselves Christians and say that they kind of experience Pentecost again over and over every Sunday. And mainly it's a lot of frothing at the mouth and a bunch of gobbledygook and rolling around on the ground. I can tell you what it's not is divine flames and tongues of fire. Otherwise, we'd see videos of that, right? Uh, they're, they're not experiencing this. But can you imagine what that would actually be like? You know, I... I freely admit I would be freaking out. You know, well, it's a divine miracle. I shall sit and I shall experience this amazing thing. It's like, what's going on? You know, is it going to land on me? Oh, it's coming. You know, it's coming. It's landing on me. So, you know, clearly this would have been a very exciting time. Verse 5. We read that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. It was a remarkable miracle that they were experiencing. Uh, Verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. What a bunch of drunks, right? Verse 14, (laughs) just so you know, doing the work From the very beginning, you will be called names. It just comes with the territory. If you don't like being called names, go find something else to do. Uh, It's just sort of part of the part of the territory. Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. But Peter, standing up at the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And then he begins giving them all the first tomorrow's world telecast. Uh, you know, it's not, we say it's the first sermon of the church. And don't get me wrong, it's a sermon. But notice it was to the world. It wasn't to the members. So it really was, in that sense, a world tomorrow program, a tomorrow's world program. It really was a work to the world. Uh, let's actually jump down to the end of the program. I hope you don't do this when you're watching on Roku or Apple TV. Let's skip down to verse 36 as we see the wrap-up. Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Notice that. You know, if, by the way, if you're a child and you've ever wondered if the promise is really just to your parents and somehow you've been left out of it in some kind of way, that God isn't working with you in some special way, that is not true. Don't let the devil whisper that in your ear. Uh, if you are the child of people that have been brought into the church, God is also working with you. You're not in some sort of weird you know, hermetically sealed bag and that this isn't meant for you as well. This is meant for you. There are things you understand that other people don't. Uh, the promise is to you and to your children and all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Notice here at the birth of the church, again, not in terms of being born in the family of God, just the beginning of the church in the world. What's the very first act of the church? Kind of like when the baby's born and at least in the cartoons, they spank the baby on the bottom and the baby, you know, starts crying. What was the very first thing that came out of the baby's mouth in this case? It was doing the work. It was preaching the message to the world. It is literally the first thing the church ever did. The body of Christ, once it was manifested in the world, immediately began doing the work. And then ask yourself this, what was the very first miracle amongst the people of God in terms of the church? It was the miraculous ability to do the work. It wasn't just some healing. It wasn't just some, uh, it was actually the ability to preach to the world. 
in their languages so the people of the whole world would be able to understand the truth of God. The very purpose of the church is manifested in its beginning. The idea that somehow the work is possibly a side quest for the church is completely false. It makes no sense at all. And it shouldn't be a surprise because this is exactly what the church was commissioned to do. We actually see the commission in all four of the Gospels. Let's take a look at that. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28. The idea that the church is to go into the world has multiple witnesses. And we see it actually in all four of the books we call the Gospels. Matthew chapter 28. We'll start there. And again, these verses are likely familiar to many of you. We do have new people coming in all the time, and so it may not be familiar to some of you, but they will become familiar to you. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. What was important to Jesus Christ to make sure was plain before he went to heaven and was guiding the church from there? This was important to him. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There is nothing that he desires to achieve for the sake of the work that he can't actually empower his church to do. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He will not stop being with us in this effort. There is this super brief time, we understand from Scripture, when there's this famine of the Word at the very end, when the work somehow isn't able to go. But it won't be for lack of trying. And that's only this brief pause before things pick up again in the place of safety and such uh, takes place. That's, that's one gospel. Let's take a look at the next. Let's look at the book of Mark. Mark chapter 16. We're trying to, to understand here at the beginning that from the very beginning of the church's existence, the work has been central to the existence of the church. It's central to our lives as Christians in the church. It is inseparable. We saw the birth of the church in terms of the beginning of the church. That was the case. And now we see why. Because it's literally the commission that Jesus Christ gave them. And it's testified in all of the Gospels. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 15. It says, he said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's always my favorite wording of the commission because that seems really thorough. Every creature. Creature covers a lot. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And this is important. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You know, there are groups out there that abuse all these words uh, and pick up you know, snakes. I think I've read a tale of a guy who died not too long ago picking up poisonous snake. Uh, he got stuck. But it's funny that you don't see them also doing miraculous healings and the rest. They're doing the one thing it's kind of easy to do on the list is pick up a deadly snake. And it's easy to pick it up. It's not always easy to put it down. Sometimes you go down too at the same time. But the point is, even though we don't perhaps see miracles at the level they did in the first century, we always look forward to that. We ask God for those. But we do see miracles. We were literally talking in Mr. Weston's office recently uh, and in our meetings online about miracles that have been experienced even during the feast and before. 
But it's important to understand that the context of these miracles is the work. When it says these signs will follow those who believe, signs is a Greek word, semion. Semion. I have no idea how it's spelled. But it sounds like semion because I wrote that part. And Thayer's lexicon points out that a sign is a miracle or wonder by which God authenticates his messengers. It's not just about the miracle. It's not just about a healing. It's not just about this. It is something for the purpose of authenticating that this person is one of my messengers. Listen to this person. We'll see this reflected later in another part of the, uh, of the tale of the church. Because it's too easy to miss sight of the fact when we're praying for miracles in the church, why miracles exist in the church. We tend to have a sense, and let me say, when I say we, I know it's me, and so I like to think it's some of you as well, that somehow miracles are for our own benefit. Miracles are for our comfort. Miracles are to keep us happy and make life nice for us. And that's garbage, brethren. That's not the purpose of signs in this. It is to authenticate the message so that people can see there's someone here. There is a God in Israel. And the further we get from that message, why would God bother to pour out signs? The further we depart from the purpose of the church to preach the gospel, why would God bother to authenticate a messenger with signs if the messenger is unwilling to carry the message into the world? The gospel and the miracles that God performs through the hands of his ministry and in the church are intimately connected. And we see that in the commission as it's given in Mark. Let's look next at Luke. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And we'll read in verse 46. Luke 24, verse 46. Again, the resurrected Jesus Christ is speaking to them. And he says, then he said to them, thus it was, it is written. And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And then he speaks in verse 49 that he would actually give them the power to do just that. That's part of what was strange to me some time ago, uh, years and years ago, when someone was upset at Dr. Meredith for saying that somehow repentance and remission of sins in Christ's name is not a part of the message that we're supposed to preach to the world. When it literally says in Luke chapter 24 that the church should be about repentance and remission of sins being preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. It's like, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, I, I have to agree with you that repentance and remission of sins in Jesus Christ's name is not a part of the gospel message, or I can agree with Luke. I'm going to agree with Luke. You know, I, something tells me Luke was probably a little more in tune with the mission of the church uh, than some others can be. Now, finally, let's look at John. Sometimes people think that John did not testify to the mission of the church, but he did. Let's turn to John chapter 20. John was written last. 
And like, you know, I actually had a great, there was a great analogy given about this at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention by this fellow who's into apologetics. And he, he has a, a ministry that's focused on apologetics as, as if you're an investigator working on a cold case. Because the historical events of Christianity happened a long time ago. And he literally was a cold case investigator. That, that was his job. That's what he did. He did police work. He was a former policeman and would investigate cases. And he talked about how when you get witnesses together, what they always want to do is separate the witnesses. It's not just so that you'll be able to see if they're lying or not. It's also because the testimony of one will corrupt the testimony of the others. Not purposefully even innocently. And he gave an example. He talked about if you saw a robbery and he, he put up, say, three testimonies from individuals. And they said, oh, yeah, the guy had a white shirt and this. And, and each of the, the people testifying of the first three would say things that were similar, a little different, but they overall were painting a picture. But in the last frame, if I recall, the third person in the background in his slide, you could see another witness that was just kind of standing a little too close. And then when he went to that witness, you saw all that witness gave all these different details that weren't related to the other ones. And he said, it's not that the person is trying to do the wrong thing, but the natural inclination is to think, well, they've already heard about his T-shirt and this and that. I'm going to fill in all the gaps. And they said, generally, they don't want that because they are capable of digging the gaps out of you. They want you also to potentially confirm or clarify the stuff that was said before. However, in the Gospels, that really is what you see. John doesn't repeat a lot of the things that the other Gospel writers did because he wrote much later. Instead, what he does is he fills in so many gaps. He doesn't go over a lot of old ground. He actually covers things the other Gospels did not include. But he still does include a reference to the church's mission. We see here in John chapter 20... And we see the resurrected Christ speaking to them in verse 21. It's brief, but it's there. So Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. That is the commission. It's packed. It's one of the most concise statements. But it tells all of us that we are sent in the very same way that God sent his son into the world. As the father has sent me, I also send you. Let's make sure we understand what that means. Let's go back to Luke chapter 4. How was Jesus Christ sent? For what was Jesus Christ sent? Because that's how we are sent. And we need to make sure we understand it. Luke chapter 4 And verse 42, Luke chapter 4 and verse 42. We read here in Luke 4:42. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. If we are sent into the world as Jesus Christ was sent by the Father into the world, then this is what we are sent for, to preach the kingdom of God to the cities of the world. In fact, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but take note of Malachi chapter 3. It prophetically speaks of Jesus Christ in Malachi 3 
and he's called there the messenger of the covenant. He was come as a messenger, and we are sent as messengers. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Again, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. The church's purpose is clear. There's no ambiguity about it. So another question to tackle. It's right there at the beginning of the church. It's in the, it's in the inspired, recorded mission of the church. Uh, some questions arise because there are, as we know, many small groups out there uh, that have said for years, when I was a pastor in a particular state, there was a group in the state right next to me, uh, right next, next to me, next to our state. Uh, there was a small group there that was one of many splits, regrettably, from the old world, worldwide church of God. And there was a fellow there who, who was sort of the, the main spiritual influence on that group. And he literally taught the congregation there not only that the church is not to do the work today of preaching the gospel, he went further and actually said that the church was under a curse if it even tried to do the work today. And it just... It just blew my mind that actually someone claiming to be a messenger of Jesus Christ, claiming to speak with his authority, would take some of God's sons and daughters and tell them the purpose of the church. If you guys try to fulfill that, you'll be under a curse. God will curse you. We have people in this room right now that would not be a part of the body of Christ if the church were not doing the work it was commanded to do. And there are ministers out there. And their members feel fantastic. You know, they, they love being a part of that congregation. And there's members out there that believe somehow it was a curse on us to reach out to the world and to try to spread this message. As Mr. Rod McNair put so well in his sermon of just a few weeks ago, to see people on the Titanic and call out to them and say, get off the boat, get off the boat, that somehow we're under a curse. There are people that say that. And over the course of the rest of the sermon, we'll look at just a few of their comments. One of the comments was this. Well, that commission was for the 12 apostles. Somehow, It was just for the apostles. Uh, it's not really for anybody else. Actually, we only have turned to a lot of verses to, to contradict that. Though I'll give you some references. We do see people who are not the apostles actually preaching the gospel in the New Testament. Uh, the example of Philip, for instance. Uh, Philip was not an apostle at the time God was using him in Samaria and such in Acts chapter 7 to preach the gospel. Even miracles were being worked at his hand to demonstrate this was uh, God's message. He was a deacon, as we understand it at the time. Now, we do know later he was an evangelist. In fact, it's uh, Acts chapter 21 and verse 8, where he's now called Philip the evangelist. What does evangelist mean, by the way? It's preacher or messenger of the good news or the gospel. That's literally the meaning of the word evangelist. The angelist part comes from angel, which means messenger. And the Eva comes not from the movie Wally, uh, comes from uh, uh, good news. Uh, it's actually the, the V kind of happened in Greek sometime after. Uh, it was more like Evangelion or something. But anyway, it means preacher of the good news, messenger of the gospel. And so later in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, he is called Philip the Evangelist. And, I, you know, we're not given the details how he was a deacon once and then he was an evangelist, though I think the events of Acts chapter 7 probably impact that. Because it really is interesting. Here you have this, this deacon who's talking to people and people are being healed and the message is spreading. And yet, even though miracles are worked at his hand, he does not lay hands on people to give them God's spirit. Even today, it has to be an actual elder. It has to be a minister to do that. 
Um, sometimes we've had deacons and others help in terms of dunking someone, you know, getting you know, giving you the bath that counts, so to speak. It's no excuse not to have other baths later, but you know, the bath that counts, right? And getting you underwater. And yet it's the elders of the church. It has to be someone who's ordained a minister to actually lay hands. And so even though you have deacon who's, you have a Philip, a deacon who's literally working miracles and people are believing the message he does not lay hands on those people. The apostles actually have to come from Jerusalem uh, to finish that off. It's interesting that even though he was capable, God was blessing him to work miracles, he still understood his place. He did not use that as an excuse to rise above what he had been ordained as. Now, as far as I know, it might have been right after that. The apostles took him aside and said, Philip, clearly God is showing fruits in you. You know, God is using you in a way. And maybe he was made an evangelist at that point. I have absolutely no idea. But that is even today how it goes in the church. When, when someone's ordained a deacon, it's not just because there was a lottery. It's not because there was a vote. It's not because something like that. It's because the church is looking for the fruits in people to see what God longs to do with them and trying to recognize that. And Mr. Weston makes that call and church administration makes that call and examines those things. So Philip was not an apostle and yet God was still using him to spread that message. I've heard some say the commission ended in the first century. That some people claim, well, no, that was, that was somehow in the first century, which is just wild that people would say that. Uh, let's turn to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 24. I do find living in Charlotte messes up my references to Matthew sometimes because I want to say, turn to Matthews. And if Mr. Ames will call you out for saying Psalms instead of Psalm, he's definitely going to call you out for saying Matthews instead of Matthew. Uh, I so appreciate Mr. Ames for doing that and keeping us all on the right track. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. The context is the end times. Verse 13 literally says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. And verse 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. Notice one precedes the other. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and nations are people. There was a time when we hoped just reaching the leader might be sufficient. And we had kind of arguments for why maybe that would be the case. But, brethren, that was hopeful thinking. You know, it wasn't negative thinking. It was positive. It was hopeful. We want to do the work. We want to know that we're succeeding where God wants us to succeed. But, brethren, nations are people. Are people. And this gospel is going to be preached to all the nations. And then the end is going to come. This is not something that ended in the first century. In fact, what did, we already read Jesus Christ's promise in Matthew 28 after he gave the commission. He said, and by the way, don't worry, I'll be with you to the end. To the end. Let's take a look, and we'll spend more time on this, uh, looking at the first century and how it understood this purpose. You know, people can say they understand things. They can say, man, buddy, I'm with you. You and me. We're doing it together. You and me. And then when you begin and they don't show up, you know what it really meant. You know, it's like, what I meant was, man, unless I got to go shopping or something, you know, or uh, if, you know, really, if I, I'm afraid that I, my favorite show's on television right now, and I know it's streaming and everything, I can watch it any time, but you really want to watch it fresh, because otherwise everybody talks about it the next day, you know, and, and you're kind of missing out. So otherwise, 
I've been with you. It's, it's what you do. It's where your feet walk. It's what your hands do. It's where you take your body and what you do with it that tells you whether you're really with the program or not. And so it's one thing for Jesus Christ to commission the church. It's another thing to start off, well, what did the church actually do? Us. It's easy to think of somehow the first century church as some kind of zoo specimen that isn't us. But brethren, this is us. Other than the clothes and the building and the air conditioning, and right now the masks and the shields and such, other than those things, this could just be us. Right? They were just as human as we were. Right? They all come from different backgrounds like we do. What was the church actually doing? Let's take some time with their example. Let's start in Acts chapter 3. Kind of picking up after Acts chapter 2. We have Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. It says the ninth hour. Acts chapter 3 and verse 2. It says, A certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. It was beautiful to get to see those actual gates uh, there in Jerusalem last year. They're all walled up now, but... Jesus knows how to take out a few, a few bricks, so I'm not so worried about that. Acts chapter 3 and verse 3. And this, this lame man who seeing Peter and John asked to go into the temple, about, when they were about to go into the temple, he asked for alms, it says. In verse 4, fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Well, boy, did he. Verse 6, then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. What a remarkable miracle. How I long for us to be able to do things like that. uh, And to actually take people by the hand uh, and just raise them up. But again, for what purpose? I admit, part of my longing to do that is just the sheer joy of seeing someone healed. Just the sheer joy of seeing someone who's been burdened, perhaps for their whole lives, to be able to suddenly experience walking like everybody else and never have to beg again, never have to ask for money. But that wasn't the purpose. There was something larger. It says, so verse 8, leaping, he he stood up, he's walking around, he's jumping and he's praising God. He's making a whole scene. And I think if you haven't walked, you know, for years, your whole life perhaps, and suddenly you can walk, I think you're allowed to make a little bit of a scene. So anyway, he is, he's making a scene, but, and it says all the people saw him walking and praising God in verse 9. And it's important, verse 10, they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Notice, this is a man that people had been stepping by day after day on their way into the temple. This is someone they knew. You know, sometimes on the road these days, we'll pass someone who's begging for money at an intersection. And maybe you've never seen that person before. You don't know if this is their first day out or if they've, you know, they've been out for weeks. People grew up with this man at the temple. People knew that this was that guy. And there was no doubt that he could not walk. So verse 11, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's greatly amazed. Notice how savvy God is. God has a message to deliver. And so what does he do? They don't even have to raise their voice. He is 
performed a miracle and everybody there is rushing to them and surrounding them. In verse 12, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and he goes through and makes this point that this is the one who was prophesied this is the one who's going to reign in that kingdom that you've been reading about your whole life they use that as an opportunity to preach the gospel the purpose of the miracle was not the miracle the purpose of the miracle was doing the work it was authenticating the messenger because the messenger has a message. He wraps up verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Again, preaching the gospel. Let's jump down to verse 26. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Verse 1 of the next chapter. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were not particularly pleased in the message. They laid hands on them, not to ordain them, uh, but to grab them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Notice the Bible's focus is again on the work. This is what the church was focused on. Uh, let's jump down to verse 11. As they're asking, what is the power? By, by what power have you done these things? They make it very plain that this was done in the name of Jesus Christ uh, of Nazareth. Verse 11, speaking of Christ, says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who'd been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. That miracle served the purpose of the work. It was hard to preach against these men, call them a bunch of heretics and loonies, when there's literally a healed man standing right next to them. So they had a hard time figuring out what to do and they ended up having to, having to let them go. So verse 18 says, They called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot not do this. An astonishing statement that just when I'm confronted 
by people. We've had people come to us from other groups before who have said that their ministers have said, we just can't preach the gospel. This is not the time to preach the gospel. And when I look at the apostles, I see them as saying, we can't not preach the gospel. It's not even possible for us not to preach the gospel. It just just drives me crazy. I pull my hair out, but I've only got so much. and I'm trying to keep it as long as I can. So verse 21, when they further threatened them, and keep in mind, these were real threats. This isn't like hearing, you know, something on the news, oh, they might do this or that. No, these are literally the people that helped engineer the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? These are real threats. This is just watching something on the news and you're worried it's going to go bad. These are the people that murdered your ruler, really, worked with the authorities to do so, now saying, you know, it's a nice life you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, right? So when they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of all the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. It's interesting, we don't always know what our burdens, what purpose they serve God. How long had this 40-year-old man wondered, why am I lame? And yet, those 40 years of lameness were a tool in God's hands for that very moment. Because no one could deny this guy's faking. Sometimes we don't see how our burdens, how our burdens serve God's purposes. And man, even if God tells us in 20 years, you know, at least we got it earlier, you know, twice as fast as, as this fella did. So anyway, so they're let go. But what do they do? This is important. What is the church like? What is the mission of the church? How did the first century church perceive themselves in all of this? Acts chapter 4, let's take a look, starting in verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. In other words, they've threatened us. You know, they're going to do this. They say they're going to do that. You know, let's, let's get together and pray. I hope we would do exactly the same thing. So verse 24, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and and your purpose determined before to be done. Now that's the first part of the prayer. And I just read it at this point to kind of highlight, notice they didn't go right into what they wanted or needed, like I would do too often. Oh God, here's what I want, you know, and I gotta get my list out. They took time praising God and putting all these things in perspective. I wish I had looked up the name of the sermon and I haven't, but Mr. Rod McNair in this congregation in Charlotte gave a wonderful sermon about the model prayer. And he, he, I thought the approach he took was really helpful for me personally about going through the model prayer, often called the Lord's Prayer. And he talked about how the beginning, when you say, you know, our, you know, our Father in heaven, you know, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, that those things are important to set our minds aright, to remind us of who it is to whom we're talking, that it really is the creator of all things, the ruler of the universe, and it sets everything else in perspective. And when I hear, when I look, here's the church under threat, you know, of, of beatings and murder and the rest, in their prayers, they still take the time to put it in perspective, that God, you're the one who's sovereign. Yes, they murdered Jesus, but even that was at your allowance and decision. You rule all things. And they put that in perspective. It's just, it's just remarkable to see people acting on advice that frankly we're even given today in the 21st century uh, by ministers in the church, and I appreciate that. But they finally do get to what they want. 
They finally get and here's what we're asking. Here's our petition. Now ask yourself before you get there, if you had just been threatened with a beating, possibly an execution for what you're doing, what would your first request be? I admit mine. I'd be tempted. God, I don't want to die. You know, please, please don't let me die. You know, you know, give me superpowers, you know, or whatever it is, or whisk me away someplace else. Notice that's not their request. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants protection. Grant to your servants safety. Grant to your servants freedom from pain. It wasn't any of those things. What was first on the mind of the first century church? Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. It was about the work. That's what the church cared about. That was at the heart of the passions of the church was that the threats would not stop them. They said, God, help us speak all the more boldly in the face of these things. And then when they do get to the whole, and by the way, a miracle would be nice. It's all about backing up the work. It's about backing up the work. And God listened, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were shake, uh, assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God pays attention when you long for the same things that he longs for. God notices that and sees someone who's working alongside him. Uh, we could jump to the next chapter, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Things don't go as easily for them this time. Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 17. We read, they're again, the spoiler alert, the disciples are getting in trouble for preaching the gospel. So Acts chapter 5, verse 17. The high priest rose up and those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go flee to your brethren in safety and peace. Ah, that's not what it says, right? It's not what it says. Essentially, let me summarize it before we read it. It says, hey, the thing you just got arrested for, go do that again. You know, go do the people that they want to kill you. Go do the things that make them mad. That's why that's why I'm letting you out of jail is to go to go get in trouble some more. So it says at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison and doors brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so they do exactly that. And you read later on the, the oh, you know, I got the high priest waking up like, oh, man, finally, I'm going to deal with those guys. Hey, go, go, go fetch them. Go to the prison. Go get them out. And they're like, uh, they're not there. They're not there. Ah, great. You know, Lenny is the worst jailman ever. First, fire Lenny. Then, go find them. You know, go talk to their contacts. See where these guys hang out. And then someone says, no, 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 no. They're, they're literally still preaching. They just went back to doing what we arrested them for. Just how gobsmacked would you have been if you were part of the leadership then? It just would have been, let's just say it would have been weird. I, in fact, verse 24, I think, says that. It says, now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. <laughs> what in the world is going on? What is, what is actually going to happen? So they actually do come, and they bring them back, and uh, so they talk to them. 
And it doesn't go really well uh, for, actually, even for the apostles in this sense. Verse 28, it says that they tell them, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. I love this verse. And I hope this verse is planted deep within our hearts that we ought to obey God rather than men. Part of my frustration, I guess, in our modern day is how many I see using this verse to justify not really obeying God, but justifying their own personal proclivities. As if some of the things that I want passionately are somehow the same things that God commands of me passionately. Not only does that not what this says, it says obey God rather than men when those things are in contradiction But please notice the context. It's not just random. It's in the context of doing the work. Because the work was at the beating, living heart of the church. We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered hanging on a tree. Uh, Verse 32, we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, which God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. And then someone says, thankfully, Gamaliel stands up and says, look, remember all these people that rose up and nothing came of that, right? Uh, if you kill these people, you make them martyrs. It's not wise. Let's not kill them. And if God's not behind it, nothing's going to come of it. And so they think, you know, that's really good advice. That's really good advice. Thank you, Gamaliel. Thank you. We appreciate you. There's a reason you're here. Uh, so they go down and they decide not to do that. So what do they do instead? They decide to be nice to the apostles. Verse 40. It says, They agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So that's what qualifies as being nice to people uh, back then. Was, all right, we're not going to kill you. Uh, Go into the room for your beating, right? And so they did, and they beat them. And when they had people beat other people, they were professional beaters. These are people that knew how to beat to influence you to strongly desire never again to do the thing for which you were beaten. You know, some of you are old enough to remember when we had an American kid who was caned, quote-unquote. I think it was Hong Kong. Was it Hong Kong? Uh, Singapore, maybe. I can't Singapore. Um, because he, had, I don't know, he did. He keyed some cars or something. And I'm sorry, Singapore don't put up with that kind of stuff. So it's like, hey, you key a bunch of cars? Well, you're getting cane, kid. Come on. And they were going to be hitting this kid with this split bamboo cane, you know. And he's going to live, but he's going to remember don't key cars is what he's going to remember. And, oh, there was an outrage in the United States. How could you do that? It's like we live in a different world. And this world will change. Don't get me wrong. This world will change. Back then, it was still that world where that would have been. There have been people saying, why didn't you beat those guys harder? That would have been the comment then. So they get beaten, but then how do they react? It says in verse... 41, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It is frustrating to me today uh, to see some of these groups and organizations uh, that I've had to wrestle with in the past, like the organization I mentioned in a different state where people were, uh, you know, people were saying these kinds of things. And you see ministers, sometimes in very large organizations, so focused on taking a salary and protecting that salary and making sure they can take a salary when the apostles in the first century were focused on taking a beating 
and to hear these other men in their nice suits and ties saying, that, well, the work really isn't necessary. I actually heard it was secondhand. Maybe it's not true, but uh, so I definitely want to attach a name to it, even though I know supposedly who it was that said it. It was at a funeral of some sort, and uh, the leader was a, the, the, the man who conducted the funeral, I think, was a leader of, of one of these organizations. And one of the church members was there, and it's awkward, and they're trying to make conversation. And so they say, well, uh, so you know, what are you guys doing for a work? You know, what are you, what are you guys doing? And the guy says, oh, no, we're not, we're not doing the work. Living's doing the work. We're not going to worry about that. And I'm just glad I wasn't there because that's just very frustrating. You know, it's like, well, enjoy your salary. I hope your retirement's working out really well. But you know what? Yeah, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do, we'll do the work. You know, have fun. You know, have fun. Um, how do you think the apostles would have reacted to that? Coming fresh from their beating. So how, how are you guys uh, doing with the work? Oh, no, we're, we're not worried about the work. You guys are doing it. I like my tie. I picked this out just for the funeral. You know, it's really, you know, it's really nice. Well, you know, we would do it, but we, we don't have the funds. You know, the funds are so hard to come by this, these day and age. You know, money's tight. The apostles weren't worried about money being tight. They're worried about, did they know the name of the guy who was going to beat them because that was their community, right? Completely different mindset. You know, I, we could have only spent time on the apostle paul he's everybody has their heroes in the bible you know have you ever been at spokesman club gentlemen and they say well they usually say uh who's one of your favorite personalities in the bible but you're not allowed to mention they have a list you know jesus and all the rest you know to try to try to press you to to name someone else um for me paul i i love paul paul's actually one of my one of my heroes i look forward to meeting him one day uh and looking forward to that in acts chapter 9 let's just begin with a little bit of of discussion about paul Acts chapter 9. And talking about Paul, right out of the gate, back when he was called Saul, he started doing the work. Actually trying to support the church that he had just persecuted. Uh, Acts chapter 9 and verse 19, it says, When he had received food, because he had been fasting, and was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all those who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? This is the guy we just heard was coming in to take all these rat bags out of our presence and kick them out of our synagogue. And instead, he's show, what in the world are they paying this guy? I hope not, right? You know, he's saying all these things. But verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And it had an impact. Verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. That's what happens. People don't like stuff. These days, they sick the uh, Facebook hordes on you and the rest, you know. So it's, just so you know, that's the... Give me social media any day over people literally plotting to kill me, right? So uh, I'd rather have, instead of actual knives and swords, just emojis of, of knives and swords. You know, it's much nicer. So it says, after many days were passed, the Jews, not sending emojis, but sharpening blades, plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Back then, if you were leaving the city, it was through a gate. In, in our visit to Jerusalem and, and Israel last summer, 
you'd often, that's one of the discoveries. You want to find the gate because this is where everybody passed. It was wonderful finds archaeological. Archaeological? What's, is that a word? I work in editorial. Uh, there are wonderful archaeological finds because that was such an important place for the city because everybody passed through those gates. And so what are they doing? They're smart. If he's leaving the city, he's got to go through a gate. So they're watching the gates. Now, some might say, well, you know, if Saul, if Saul had faith, if Paul had faith, he'd just march right through. Nothing would happen. No, they were prudent and wise. So it says, verse 25, the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Uh, you know, sometimes the work doesn't involve a lot of glamour and glory. Sometimes it involves being lowered down a wall while you're sitting in a basket like a piece of fruit. So uh, it's not about the glory. It's not about the glamour. It's not about saying, well, I'm just going to march through. What are they going to do? It's like, no, it's about the work. And, you know, the odds are better in the basket versus watching. The, uh, that's the point in thing. How do I get to the next city to do the work? Well, in this case, it's it's a basket. That was his fleet car. Uh, it was it was a basket. So anyway, the disciples let him down and he went off and continued preaching. Prudence is not a lack of faith. Uh, Acts chapter 14. Again, another spoiler alert. Paul's in trouble for preaching the gospel. So Acts chapter 14. In this case, it is bad. Maybe he couldn't find a basket. Uh, so Acts chapter 14 and verse 19. It says, The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, there at Lystra, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Please understand, this isn't like in the movies when they don't allow, you know, kind of PG, where they don't allow a lot of blood to be shown or something. And so it's like, oh, we think he's dead and he's really just unconscious. Yeah, we used to, I used to love the A-Team shows when I was in the, a kid in the 80s. And it was amazing how many bullets flew in that show and nobody ever got shot. I mean, it was more bullets they probably saw in World War II, and yet nobody gets shot. I can guarantee there's a car flipped over every episode, uh, but nobody gets shot. Well, this was not, life was not PG-13 back then. They knew what a dead, stoned body looked like because they had participated in many stonings. And it's bloody, and there's brokenness. And there's gash and wounds, potentially broken teeth and the rest. And they went up to him after stoning and believed he was dead. That they had done their job. He had been brutally stoned to death and drug what they thought was his corpse out of the city. Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Crazy man, Paul. Anyway, so he goes into the city. Now, the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derby. But even then, what does it say, verse 21? When they had preached the gospel to that city in Derby and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They went back to the very city where they all decided in that city, let's murder this guy. And they went back and used it to encourage them, saying at the end of verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Just remarkable. There's just so many examples with Paul. Let's look at Acts chapter 21. If you do not believe that doing the work is in the very DNA of the church, you have not read the book of Acts. Acts chapter 21. Very innocent beginning. Here the church is concerned about Paul because he's saying a lot of things and some of the Jews there are like, man, it sounds like you're saying, you know, that the, the Jews should give up everything in the law and stuff. Even in his own day, Paul was misunderstood. And so he actually goes and does a sacrifice at the temple uh, with some other Jews to show absolutely not, absolutely not, 
That's why sometimes people get confused if there may be sacrifices in the millennium for a time, that somehow sacrifices and Christ's sacrifice cannot coexist at all. This definitely shows that that is possible. Paul himself goes to participate in a sacrifice. Those things do not actually cleanse sin, but they are ceremonial and do serve certain purposes. So he actually goes to participate in that. Starts off really nice. Verse 27. Now when the seven days were almost ended, that is of this particular sanctified period, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. A lot of laying on of hands. And cried out, men of Israel, help. They're asking for help. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That is not true. Verse 29 says he'd been seen with Greeks in the city. He did not bring them in the temple. Rumors are not new to the 21st century. They just put two and two together and got 145. They saw him with Greeks in the city and assumed that he had brought them into the temple, which he actually had not. It says whom they supposed Paul had brought. Verse 30. And all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut, trying to keep out the contamination. Uh, so anyway, it says they came seeking to kill him. The Romans get involved because clearly there's a mess. And Romans got to be thinking, what is going up in Judea? Man. Verse 37. Paul was about to be led to the barracks, right? They're trying to keep him safe. He's under arrest to protect his life, uh, trying to see what's going on because the Jews had all sorts of accusations. Verse 37, it says, as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, can I speak to you? And he replied, the commander, well, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? People have to understand there's a reason the church avoids worldly controversies. One, not only do worldly controversies generally have nothing to do with the gospel, they also taint the message of the gospel. Because people hear you preaching the gospel and all they hear is that you're that guy that says the Constitution says you don't have to pay income tax. We're about God's business. Let the Republicans, Democrats, Independents, and Fruit Loops of the world talk about what they want to talk about. We talk about what the Bible has to talk about. So this would have discredited him. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. Verse 39, Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia and a citizen of no mean city. It's interesting. He actually doesn't say a citizen of Rome. He's, Paul's very subtle because uh, it actually affords him other opportunities. He goes, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia and a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. I speak to the people. No, it happened to my voice right there. I'm also a professional speaker. Uh, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. Come here. I know you're all so mad. I know you're all upset. Come here. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And then what does he do? He preaches the gospel that makes all of them mad. He just goes out and actually does exactly what Paul does. That would have been the time to not preach it, perhaps, you know, because, hey, you know, people don't like the gospel stuff. But what does he do? He just continues. Paul is a machine. It's like he could not help himself but preach the gospel. It's what Paul did. Uh, actually, go down to verse, uh, where is it? See, 23, chapter 23. Um, even when Paul's about to be torn to shreds, he keeps preaching the gospel. And we get to Acts 23 and verse 11, and Paul is encouraged. It says, Acts 23, verse 11, but the following night, after he'd been actually pulled from the crowd so they didn't tear him to pieces, it says, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, 
For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. That is, you're going to keep doing this, and I'm actually going to send you into the heart of the beast, if you will. You're going to be preaching this at Rome. So actually, you go through the story. We're not going to go through it all. In Acts chapter 25, you have Paul talking with uh, uh, Felix and Festus and eventually appealing to Caesar. Festus was a procurator at the time, and he really wanted good relationships with the Jews. And he didn't understand why in the world Paul is even being accused of anything. It didn't make any sense to him. All he knew is that Jews hate this guy. So he asked Paul, well, hey, you know, uh, how about I send you back to Jerusalem? I can't really think of a reason to charge you or anything here. Your problem's in Jerusalem. But Paul saw through that and said, oh, no, 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 I'm a Roman citizen. Okay, uh, they want to kill me. I know what you're doing. He says, I know you're trying to make goody-good with those. No one has the right to send me away to Jerusalem as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar himself. Because as Caesar had become Augustus Caesar, if you will, as there was an emperor, he kind of took on a lot of powers for himself, including the ability to make some of these judgments. And so anyway, citizens had the right to appeal to Caesar. But why does he do that? Because God had told him, I want you to go to Rome. And this was actually going to help guarantee that. So you have Acts 26 where Agrippa shows up, King Agrippa. And we were actually there in the trip to Jerusalem, there at uh, Caesarea Maritima. That was, it says in Acts 25 that when Agrippa showed, they all came to the auditorium. And we were there in the auditorium. It's, you know, been run down a little bit since then. But we were there in the auditorium where Agrippa comes and all these important people fill up. And you have these people in the auditorium. And Agrippa says in Acts 26 and verse 1, tells Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So he gives him permission to speak. This is his opportunity to talk about, you know, his innocence and the rest, which he does say that he is uh, innocent. He does say that he does say in various places that, you know, of these things I'm being accused of the law of the Jews, of the law of the Romans, you know, of the law of my God. He says, I'm, I'm innocent of these things. But Paul just cannot help himself. Go down to verse 24. Essentially, what does he launch into? He launches into the gospel. He launches into proclaiming the fact that Jesus Christ is the king of the coming kingdom. And he is going to uh, come and he's proclaiming light to the world in verse 24. So Festus, who'd been perhaps a little impressed with Paul up to this point, in verse 24 it says, Now thus he made his defense. Festus said, verse 24, with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Like, what in the world? I thought you were a pretty normal, smart guy and I was feeling sorry for you. And now you're a nut. You're clearly a nut. You're talking about this guy that was dead and now he's alive again and he's somehow going to rule the world. I just, I don't get you, Paul. All your studying has driven you insane. Verse 25, but he, that is Paul, said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely, that is King Agrippa, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, says this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, some have thought perhaps he was speaking sarcastically here, and perhaps that is the case. I, 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 I don't know. I know I like to believe that he was not, that he actually was saying, you know, here you are arrested in front of me, and here I am with pomp and circumstance and all these, and yet you almost persuade me to actually go for this and to actually accept this insanity you've somehow gotten bound up in. And Paul said, verse 29, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether 
such as I am, except for these chains. Paul said, this is actually my wish. He said, when I see you, King Agrippa, and I see you in your wealth, and I see you in your splendor, and I see you in your comfort, the thing that rings out most in me is I wish you were like me. I wish not necessarily that you were arrested and in chains, but that you knew the things I did. That you embrace the hope I embrace. That, the, the, that you understand what it's like to have your sins actually forgiven and be able to walk in newness of life. And that's part of what set Paul apart when he saw people in the world because he was like us, because he was called like us, because he was filled with a purpose like the Father longs for us to be filled with. When he saw other people, they were people who were part of the harvest. Yes, God calls but God was never going to have to call someone in spite of Paul. Paul wanted to make sure I'm a tool in the hands of God and he's never going to have to call someone because I was lazy and sitting on my bottom. He wanted to be useful to God for his calling I and mean, for calling other people and working in the world. Paul saw every opportunity, every situation as an opportunity to preach the gospel, even in those opportunities in which his life was at stake. Even his own Roman citizenship was a tool. He appealed to Caesar. You know, later, we won't turn there for the sake of time, in Philippians, towards the end, when Paul's greeting people. He's arrested. Again, Paul was very good at being arrested. You know, you need to know what you're good at and learn to do that. You know, so anyway, Paul's good at getting arrested. But it's interesting at the end of Philippians when he greets people and he's sending greetings from other Christians. And he says, also, those of Caesar's household greet you. That even people right under the nose of Caesar and part of that household had actually accepted the gospel that we preach. The idea that some people are just too wealthy or they're too worldly wise or this and that, that somehow they can't accept this was not an excuse for Paul. Because Paul knew if anyone can crack that mind, God the Father and Jesus Christ can crack that mind. And I'm going to preach. And sure enough, even people in Caesar's household. There's been a long time legend or myth that Seneca, the famous philosopher, was friends with Paul. I'd love to believe that. I think Seneca was a pretty cool philosopher, not perfect, you know, uh, heathen philosopher, uh, stoic. But regardless, when you read the letters, they're clearly fake. Don't go for fake history. <laughs> it's like fake news. Um, but regardless, Caesar's household also. Why? What was up with Paul? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's read his mindset in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and ask ourselves, does it match our own? Do we recognize that the result of our calling has to be the same sentiment, has to be the same agreement, the same feeling, the same passions? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul, you might think, man, Paul, you're wonderful. You do so much. You know, look at you. You know, And it's really he prays on him for all he did. And what is his response in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16? Paul says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He didn't even see it as an option. It wasn't like he could choose to preach the gospel or not to preach the gospel. It was a necessity. He had to sleep. He had to breathe. He had to eat. And he had to preach the gospel. He understood why we are called. And the church has been blessed to understand that since the days of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. 
he recognized that was the purpose of the church. There's a lot of things I could refer to. Let me actually recommend one in particular. I'll actually recommend two. Both of them in this case happen to be by, by Mr. Weston. There are those who say that, no, 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 the church isn't doing the work. Now we've got to focus on preparing the bride. Now, there's an article of the Living Church News, July, August 2006. You can find it online, July, August 2006, titled Preparing the Bride. Take a look at that and understand what that means. There's actually another article more recent, uh, Living Church News 2019, November, December, titled Why the Church? And it makes the same point but actually advances that argument a bit further. You know, the idea of preparing the bride, I like the way Mr. Weston puts it. Where is most of the bride right now? The bride that will marry Christ at the resurrection, six feet under. They're not being prepared anymore. You know how most of them got prepared? Living and preaching the gospel. In fact, turn to for, uh, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is the last verse we'll turn to, and I'm about to wrap up. But I do think this is important. We have Jesus Christ himself. We have the woman at the well, a story that that many of you are familiar with. A Samaritan woman. And he was hungry. If you look at verses 3 through 8 in John chapter 4, they, they hadn't had time to eat. He was tired. He was hungry. And they went out to get some food, and they come back, and they urge him to eat something. And I don't know why they have to urge him. Maybe they're seeing some kind of satisfaction on his face. Maybe there was a smirk. Is it possible to be divine and smirk? I hope so, because I sure like smirking. Uh, so I don't know. But for some reason, they have to urge him to eat. In verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, because they were brilliant, uh, has anyone brought him anything to eat? You know, he's got secret food. Is he holding out on us? You know, like they picture Christ getting a Ziploc bag out, you know, and a little little beef bologna sandwich. It's a bologna. Would Christ eat bologna? Let's not get into that argument. So anyway, has anyone brought him anything to eat? So Christ said to them, it says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work and do not think the work is anything less than what we're talking about now in terms of going to the world. He makes that explicit. Verse 35, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they're already white for harvest. They're out there waiting for someone to come with the sickle and to reap what God is doing in the world. It says verse 36, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. The opportunity to gather fruit for eternal life is what we've been given. That's what God says through Daniel, right? We won't turn there for the sake of time, but in Daniel chapter 12, please note verses 1 through 3, when it says, those who turn many to righteousness will shine, right? We will shine like the stars forever. That's a description of the first resurrection. That's a description of the glorified state of the family of God. And how does God describe it through the prophet Daniel? He doesn't just say those who were faithful. He doesn't just say those who were studying their Bibles. He says those who turn many to righteousness. That is what we are to be doing at this time. If the church is not devoting itself to striving to turn many to righteousness, then it is falling short in the very thing that God ties to its future eternal estate. 
I want to wrap up with a quote from Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. Not because it's authoritative just because he said it, but just because I want to recognize that this church has understood this for a long time. In a letter to the brethren written in 1974, man, I was four years old, he said this, Why has God called you and me now while we still have to fight and resist the cunning of Satan ahead of time instead of when Christ shall have come and put Satan away and set his hand to call every living person? Why has God called you and me now? The answer is to get this job done. Brethren, that's why we have been called today.